Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of England, episode 86, Handing Over. Right, enough messing about with all that social and legal stuff, let's get back to the real thing. Kings, battles, dates and all. So, do I assume we've all heard of the iceberg rule, i.e. that nine-tenths of everything is hidden? Well, there's a bit of that in 1305. On the face of it, everything was sorted. The Scots were beaten... Gascony had been handed back, the Welsh were part of Edward's great British Empire, and in Browning's words, God was in his heaven and all was right with the world. Not, sadly. Now, for once in his life, Edward had tried to be sensitive to Scottish feelings after Commons' surrender. Rather than just imposing a colonial administration like he'd done the last time, Edward called in the leading Scots and talked it through with them. There was a Scottish Parliament and all, and the sheriffs appointed were almost exclusively Scottish rather than English. Even Robert Wishart, the implacable Bishop of Glasgow, was part of the conversations. But despite all of this, it was still something of a mess, a Gordian's knot that would take an Alexander to unpick. In Scotland, there'd been years of war, despair and murder. Even more complicated was the fact that the Scottish lords had been disinherited as rebels, and the English lords had all been granted their lands. But now that the Scots had come back into the fold, that was just a little awkward, to say the least. A solution was found that the Scots would buy their land back, but still pretty chaotic. Ireland was in a mess too. Edward had ruthlessly and carelessly drawn on its resources to help him in the fight against Scotland, without a care of what actually happened there. The Norman aristocracy had become largely absent, resulting in a resurgence of the power of native lords and the result was an uneasy political situation at best and a rise in general lawlessness. 
Ireland, as in so many times in its history, was suffering from at once neglect and rapacity. In Gascony, the situation was also not that great, just quite simply because of the years of war. Really, the only place sitting pretty was Wales, where the demand for Welsh foot soldiers had meant an inflow of silver and wealth. Despite this, Edward found time in his day for a spot of vindictiveness. Here's a writ I turned up in the excellent, if frighteningly expensive, English historical documents book. Edward, by God's grace, etc., to the Honourable Father in God, Walter, by the same grace, Bishop of Chester. We send to you by the bearer of these letters, Henry de Keithley, who has been brought before us, and we have ascertained on his own admission that he is the one who brought us the bill on behalf of the Archbishop of Canterbury and others who pressed us so outrageously at the Lincoln Parliament. And we order you to have the said Henry put in safe custody in the Tower of London to remain there until we have reason to know that he is repentant for all that he has done in this matter. So, Edward was settling a few old scores. He didn't go wild, he didn't plunge the country into chaos. So, Edward was settling a few scores. He didn't go wild, he didn't plunge the country into chaos. But Edward was a man who firmly believed in holding a grudge. And there were a few who consequently felt the hand of the king on their collar. Actually, the thing I really liked about this letter is the next bit. And know that we wish the said Henry to be kept courteously and safely in the said tower without irons. But this courtesy and this confinement to be so arranged that it can be understood to proceed from your grace and not from ours. Now that's an interesting level of cunning, isn't it? I'm not quite sure how to take it, but at least if it's tyranny... It's tyranny of a reasonably gentle type, without irons. Robert of Winchelsea, the Archbishop of Canterbury concerned, was treated less kindly. Bob and Ted really didn't get on, so the ABC had been a firm supporter of Bigot and the Barons in 1297. Not only that, he'd also raised merry hell with Edward over the blatant corruption of his right-hand man, Walter Langton. Now, Edward was particularly sensitive to any suggestion that he couldn't choose his own ministers, given the provisions of Oxford imposed on his dad. And then, to capital, Winchelsea took up the cause of one John Ferrers. You may remember Edward's rather vicious removal of the Ferrers family from their lands in his salad days as a lad. This was not an incident that Edward wanted to have revived. So, he did what your average Plantagenet does best, and went on the attack, through the Pope. Before you could say knife, Edward had a papal bull absolving him from all the promises he'd made, none of which were worth the rough end of a pineapple anyway, as we know, and Winchelsea found himself suspended and recalled to Rome. We've not spent much time with Robert, but he is part of a small but honourable tradition of archbishops of Canterbury who are prepared either to take on the king in support of good governance of the realm, or at very least to try to broker a deal between king and his barons when things get sticky. So, think of Stephen Langton in the time of King John, and to a lesser, much lesser degree, Boniface of Savoy in the time of de Montford. Don't get me wrong, we're not talking here of altruism or anything close to it. Much of the motivation was to defend the rights and liberties of the Church, but there is a strong element of keeping the peace and a bit of fairness. Still, some scores had been settled. Edward was now getting on a bit at the age of 67, but still spry, still active, and still capable of doing his duty in many ways, as evidenced by the pregnancy of his 27-year-old wife. But now we need to leave Edward, 
and travel north to the frozen wastes. The scene is a Franciscan church in Dumfries, in southwestern Scotland, right near the altar. Two of the most powerful men in Scotland are having a full and frank exchange of views. One of them, John the Red Comyn, is being asked by the other, Robert Bruce, to join a secret conspiracy to put Bruce on the throne of Scotland. Bruce is able to reveal that the Bishop of St Andrews is part of the plot. Unsurprisingly, Comyn is unimpressed. Where was Bruce, he might have asked, when he, Comyn, was still trying to defeat the English? On the English side, that's where. He'd have wanted more than one good reason why he should support the naked ambitions of a turncoat, rather than continue with his loyal support of the rightful King of Scotland, John Balliol. Now this got Bruce proper blazing, and he did what any right-thinking person does in a church when losing an argument. He stuck a knife in common and stalked outside. He wasn't quite sure he'd finished the job, so one of his household knights went back in and did just that. Now, by pretty much any standard, this is a pretty hideous murder. Bruce, of course, realised that the need for secrecy was now gone. The day's work had fired the starting gun on two wars, one of them with the entire common clan and one with Edward. In short order, many castles in southwestern Scotland had fallen to the rebels. Bruce then met up with the patriotic Bishop of Glasgow, Robert Wishop, who absolved him of his crime and sent him on his way. Wishart's lord and master, the Pope, was to disagree with his decision and excommunicate Bruce, but by the end of March 1306, Bruce had been crowned King Robert at Schoonabbey in the traditional Scottish manner. As you can imagine, Edward was not a happy bunny when he heard the news, and in fact it's about this time that his health begins to fail. There can be little doubt that he was itching to get up there and teach the Scots another lesson, but it was equally clear that he was going to struggle to do this. So we get a kind of handover of the reins to a younger generation. It's decided that the 31-year-old Earl of Pembroke, Imer of Falance, will set off immediately to lead the English forces in Scotland. A larger expedition will muster in July to be led by Edward of Carnarvon. But before that can happen, Prince Edward and his generation and companions will be knighted in a magnificent ceremony which gives us the perfect opportunity to do a little mini-introduction to Edward, soon to be Edward II, King of England. There can be few other kings of England that get closer to Edward II in terms of their absolutely rock-bottom reputation. I don't propose to go into that now, but part of the story of how rotten he was is supposed to start with his relationship with his father and early evidence of fecklessness. In fact, while they have their rocky moments... Edward wouldn't be the only prince to kick against his father's rule, and actually the upshot was probably that Edward was probably pretty happy with his son. The prince was without doubt a handsome, well-built, upright lad and a superb horseman, which counted for a lot. He'd already been part of his father's plans and part of the family business. At the age of 13, he'd formerly been the regent of England, while Edward Senior was over the water, though at 13 we'd hope his role was largely titular. In 1300, at the age of 17, he'd been involved in a campaign in southwestern Scotland and done perfectly okay, while probably not covering himself in glory. One of the features of poor old Edward's reign is the almost universally negative contemporary reporting, but here's the record of Prince Edward's siege of Caer Laverock. 
The fourth squadron, with its train, Edward the King's son led. A youth of 17 years of age and newly bearing arms. He was well proportioned and handsome, of a courteous disposition and well-bred, and desirous of finding an occasion to make proof of his strength. He managed his steed marvellously well. In 1305 there had been an incident, a furious argument between Prince Edward and the King's right-hand man, Walter Langton. Much has been made of the incident, sometimes being used as evidence of Prince Edward's extravagance and general bad boyness. In fact, it's probably got as much to do with Edward's touchiness and general level of grouch as it has to do with Edward Jr. Essentially, Prince Edward and Walter had a pretty niggly relationship anyway, something to do with arguing over who owned what bits of land. The friction was probably more to do with Prince Edward now being 21, not being noted for being tight with his money and wanting more financial independence, and so it came to words. Prince Edward apparently used gross and harsh words with Walter Langton, and the whole thing came before the King. Now, King Edward was touchy about Walter on account of the fact that the barons had tried to remove him, on account of the fact that he was clearly a hideously corrupt treasurer, and on account of the fact that Edward liked him. So Edward took Walter's side and flew off the handle at his son. Edward was banished from court and from his presence, but within a couple of months the whole thing had blown over, with Prince Edward's household following rather pathetically and dog-like behind the king's court, until restored to royal favour. Another accusation against Prince Edward will be that he's a spendthrift, given to high living and pursuits, rather than getting on with the business of ruling the country like a gooden. Well, we'll see. But as a prince, the truth is that your average Plantagenet expected to live well and have something of a display. Previous princes had caused plenty of trouble. Think of Henry II's son, Henry the Young King, not to mention Richard and John's princely failings. He was capable of insensitivity. In 1302, he had caused upset with the monks of Peterborough by refusing to accept a very valuable cup at 40 quid until one of a similar value be given to his companion, Piers Gaveston. You can picture the scene, and true enough, it doesn't speak well of him. But the fact that he had a love of finery and going to tournaments was not a shock, certainly not to his father, though no doubt it had its irritations. So in 1306, before everyone left for Scotland, Edward threw his son and his companions the most magnificent hooli London had seen for some time. The occasion was the knighting of the 21-year-old Edward at Westminster, and the king decided to take the opportunity to have the young men of many other leading families knighted at the same time. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There were vast numbers of knights, 267, all to be knighted. 
Most of the knights camped in the grounds of the temple church. Huge canvas pavilions were built with separate tents for lords and ladies to sleep in. Most knights spent the night before the ceremony at the temple church. The idea of the vigil was to compose themselves for the life of chivalry they were about to lead, but according to the monks next door, they were having so much fun and making so much noise composing themselves for a life of chivalry that the monks couldn't hear themselves pray. So there has to be some doubt over the type of self-composition going on. Prince Edward himself was doing his composing in Westminster Abbey. The following day, a procession of knights walked towards the abbey, watched by a crowd of Londoners waving and cheering. Meanwhile, in the peace and quiet of the chapel at the Palace of Westminster, Prince Edward was dubbed by his father. The earls of Lincoln and Hereford fastened his spurs and the deed was done. Edward was a knight, as well as Prince of Wales and Duke of Aquitaine. Over they went to the abbey church to join a crush so intense that two knights were actually crushed to death. Once there, they took their vows of knighthood. I don't have an actual vow, but here is what was sworn in the Song of Roland, which is 12th century, and which, along with the Arthurian legends, underpinned so much of the Code of Chivalry. So here we go. I solemnly swear to fear God and maintain his church, to serve my liege lord in valour and faith, to protect the weak and defenceless, yeah, right, to give succour to widows and orphans, to refrain from wanton giving of offence, to live by honour and for glory, to despise pecuniary reward, to fight for the welfare of all, to obey those placed in authority, to guard the honour of fellow knights, to eschew unfairness, meanness and deceit, to keep faith, at all times to speak the truth, to persevere to the end in any enterprise begun, to respect the honour of women, never to refuse a challenge from an equal and never to turn the back upon a foe. The most remarkable thing about said code was just how clearly so much of it was ignored, but hey, twas ever thus, I guess. Anyway, it was then Prince Edward himself who dubbed everyone, and in the list of new knights is a roll call of the key figures of the next reign. At this point, all these men were companions and supporters of their prince, but not all of them by any means would show any kind of staying power as far as that was concerned. But here are a few names of the men there to hold on to for the future. First of all, of course, there was Piers Gaveston. By this stage, Piers and Edward are very close indeed, and we'll talk more next week and later. Then there's Roger Mortimer of Wigmore, grandson of the Roger Mortimer, who cut off de Montford's head, and indeed the head of de Montford's supporter, Hugh de Spencer. There's Bartholomew of Baddlesmere, who is not such a big and important knight landwise, but who would be a central figure at court. We've got Edmund Fitzalan, soon to be Earl of Arundel, Humphrey de Bohun, son of the Earl of Hereford, Hugh de Spencer the Younger, grandson of Hugh killed at Evesham, and presumably tempted to give Roger Mortar ahead of him in the queue a knife in the back for the sake of his grandfather. I could go on, but I doubt you're remembering any of these names anyway, too many of them for a podcast, but the point I'm trying to make is to emphasise the personal bond between these people. We should never forget that medieval political history is so much about the relationships between these great families. Anyway, after the knighting, they all streamed out and walked across to Westminster Hall in the Royal Palace. A whopping feast began, with 80 minstrels strumming away. After a few courses, the big performance dish appeared of two swans, apparently swimming on a net of gold, which was carried around the hall on a silver platter. 
Then the white-haired old king appeared and shouted to the assembled knights, By the God of heaven and these swans, I will avenge the death of John Common and have revenge on the perfidious Scots. He turned to his son and said, As soon as I have accomplished this task and revenged the injuries done by Bruce to God and to the church, I will go to the Holy Land and there end my days fighting the infidel. But swear to me this, that if I die before the task is finished, you will carry my bones with the army and not bury them until full vengeance has been wrought on the Scots. Of course, everyone went potty and the hall was filled with shouts. The Earl of Lincoln knelt and swore he'd fight for the king for the rest of his days. The prince got carried away as well and swore he wouldn't sleep in the same place two nights running until he'd reached Scotland. Whatever you think of King Edward, you can't help but like his style. Remember the line that'll appear on his tomb, keep the faith. He also even starts something of a fashion by way of swearing on birds. After all that was done, no doubt there was more drinking and feasting and the odd sore head the following day. Meanwhile, up north, Ima de Valence, the Earl of Pembroke, was getting on with it. In early June, he'd crossed the River Forth and captured the Bishop of St Andrews. He attacked and took the castle at Cooper in Fife. Now, as it happens, Cooper had recently been captured for Bruce by the redoubtable Robert Wishart, Bishop of Glasgow. Slightly cheekily, Wishart had taken a gift of wood sent by Edward to help him build his cathedral at Glasgow, and he'd used it to build siege engines, which pretty much sums the guy up. But Wishart was now in English hands. Pembroke went north to Perth, where he was joined by many supporters of John Comyn. Bruce came to meet them and challenged Pembroke to meet him on the field of battle, which Pembroke declined. So Bruce retired to Methven, a village close by, but Pembroke was just messing with him. In the early hours of the following morning, the English fell on Bruce before he'd eaten his morning sausage and routed the army. Bruce fled with a few hundred men. Meanwhile, Edward was struggling north to try and join in, but by now was clearly not well. But well enough to visit his vengeance on the Scots. Edward was cross, very cross. So Pembroke had been told not to hold back, to kill and destroy any Bruces he could get his hands on. Pembroke was a bit more fastidious, and sent them down to the English. But Edward had them dragged through the streets of Newcastle and duly hanged. Robert Wishart was a bit luckier being a bish, but would spend the next eight years in prison where actually he'd go blind. Poor old Bruce had not yet reached the nadir of his fortunes. Fleeing from Pembroke, he was caught by the Clan MacDougall, allies of the Commons, and again defeated at Dalree. Once again he fled, sending his wife and daughter away to try and find safeties in the Orkneys. From this point forward, Bruce and his great ally James the Black Douglas would change their strategy to one of hit-and-run and guerrilla tactics, and they'd begin to score some successes. But for the moment it was all one-way traffic, and by the end of June 1306, a group of Bruce's family and supporters were all captured. These included his brother Neil, his wife Elizabeth, daughter Marjorie and sister Mary, along with key supporters the Earl of Athol and Isabella, Countess of Buchan. Edward was not in forgiving mood. Neil Bruce was beheaded. No Earl had been executed in England for 230 years. A mark of honour to anyone out there who can tell me who that was. A mark of honour to anyone out there who can tell me who the last one was. 
but Edward couldn't give a tinker's curse about records, Athol was hanged, though on a gallows 30 foot higher than his fellows to mark the significance of the event. In a funny sort of way, the treatment of Isabella and Bruce's sister Mary was even more shocking. Edward's instructions were, Let her be closely confined in an abode of stone and iron, made in the shape of a cross, and let her be hung up out of doors in the open air at Berwick, that both in life and after her death she may be a spectacle and eternal reproach to travellers. In fact, both of them were hung in wooden cages for all to see, with their only covered area being the loo. And there they hung up Roxborough and Berwick for four years. We really have come a long way since William the Marshal's days. The old warrior would have turned in his grave. The last year of Edward's life was not an easy one. In 1306, Bruce was a loser and a deeply unpopular one at that, even in the eyes of most Scots. In 1307, he was a hero and the great Scottish hope. So what changed? The biggest thing was Edward's own fault. In his rage, he'd confiscated the Scottish rebels' lands and given carte blanche to his supporters to go get. The result was a carnage and a reign of terror that turned the Scots against the Loyalists and the English. And then Bruce began to win. He's now a hit-and-run fight. Things are pretty desperate, but he has a small army of men. And this time when he's caught, he wins. A skirmish at Glen Trull, a proper battle at Luden Hill against Pembroke. The idea of English invincibility had now gone. By May, a Scottish supporter of Edward wrote, I hear that Bruce never had the goodwill of his own followers or of the people in general as much as now. It appears that God is with him, for he has destroyed King Edward's power both amongst the Scots and the English. May it please God to prolong King Edward's life, for men say openly that when he's gone, victory will go to Bruce. It's a judgment that's just a bit previous, but actually remarkably accurate. There is also a celebrated bust-up around this time with Prince Edward, which concerns Edward's great pal, Piers Gaveston. What sparks it off is that in February 1307, Walter Langton goes to the king and passes on a request from the prince to give the French county of Pontieu to Gaveston. So, picture the scene. Walter Langton has just delivered the news. Edward is livid and summons his son. In comes Prince Edward, all hopeful. Here's the exchange. King Edward said, On what business did you send this man? That I might, with your assent, give the county of Pontieu to Sir Piers Gaveston. You, Horson! Now you want to give lands away. You, who never gained any? As the Lord lives, were it not for fear of breaking up the kingdom, you should never enjoy your inheritance. At this point, according to the very anti-Prince Edward chronicler Guisborough, the king seized his son's hair in both hands and tore as much of it out as he could. Before exhausted, he threw him out. This has been read as part of the story of Gaveston's toxic influence on Prince Edward. Of evidence of the king's disgust of both Gaveston and Edward, and disgust at a homosexual relationship between them. This isn't the place to discuss Edward's relationship with Gaveston, but what does seem likely is that the king's wrath was actually directed mainly at his son. It's Gaveston that's forced to go into exile, but it's clear that he can be maintained, and it's also explicitly stated that he should await a recall from the king. Basically, it looks like the king is hacked off, wants to punish his son for his profligacy, and removing his friend is a convenient way of doing so. 
But to me, in my ignorance, although most historians think the king's reaction is unsurprising, it seems like one hell of an overreaction to me. The lad was only asking. We should remember the king is ill, but it seems to me that it speaks of a troubled relationship between king and son, and a sense of deep worry in Edward during difficult times that his son is not the man he'd like him to be. But that's just speculation. By July, at the age of 68, Edward was dead. He died, as you'd expect, fighting on. By June, he was clearly very ill and taken on a litter to Carlisle, where a new army was being mustered to fight the Scots. Edward was determined to lead his men into war again, and if you want a job doing, you need to do it yourself. So the litter was abandoned, and Edward rode on horseback out from Carlisle at the head of his men. But after ten days, he'd only got six miles to Borough by Sands. On the 7th of July, his attendants came to feed him and tried to lift him from his bed, and he died in their arms. So there we go. That's Edward I for you. Ta-da! What do we think? Out of ten? It's pretty clear what his contemporaries thought. Like Richard III, we are always in danger of judging medieval kings by modern standards. Things were simpler then. Here are some contemporary quotes. King Edward was an outstanding warrior from his adolescence in tournaments, most mighty in war, most pugnacious. All the things he did, he wisely brought to an end. He did not rule in a frivolous state of mind, nor under the influence of flatterers, but with prudent counsel of good and wise men. He never knew how to be at rest. He was the most Christian monarch of England. He took no brown stuff. You knew you were in the presence of someone that mattered. If you wanted to cause some grief, you knew darned well you'd get it back in spades. The more I know about him, the more impressed I am with Roger Biggard. Who remembers the immortal line from Harry Potter, It takes great courage to stand up to your enemies, but even more to stand up to your friends. Well done, Roger, I say. Very sad that he was the last of his line. I confess I feel much more positive about Edward now than I did when I started. So apologies to Ali on the Rex Factor podcast for ever doubting him. In particular, there was one rather cute thing I learnt, which is that every year on Easter Monday, the Queen's ladies-in-waiting would try and catch him in bed, because he offered them a ransom if they could. So we did have a sense of fun, and it speaks to the point that he was a proper king. Right or wrong, he couldn't be ignored. For the record, I still think he did some damn fool things, so the whole Scottish thing is a complete nightmare and came about not just because he made some errors of judgment, but because he dishonestly tried to manipulate a situation. He allowed Philip IV to sell him the most outrageous dummy in Gascony, and although that probably says more about Philip than Edward, still, please, get a grip. And it's the dishonesty of Edward I I don't like. He has a reputation for creating law, but the law, as far as he was concerned, was for everyone except him. We've not talked about it much, but he does nothing of any value in Ireland and in fact bleeds it dry to help his Scottish wars. And English power there goes into decline for centuries as a result. He leaves a Scottish war and £200,000 of debt for his son to deal with. Plus, the thing I've been warbling on about, a complete step change in political violence that we will now have to live with for centuries and will have direct consequences for his son's backside. So yes, OK, I'm more convinced than I was, but I don't think, Edward, that you're off the hook. Not sure he'd give a tinker's curse, but there you are. So, to finish off, Edward's tomb. It's really quite a thing. Picture, of course, is on the website. It's just a big block of granite. 
Nothing showy. And remember all his nights on the round table, tournaments and stuff. Edward liked a bit of show. The words on the tomb were painted on in the 16th century, but it's a reasonable bet they reflect contemporary wording. So the wording is, Edwardus primus Scotorum malleus hic est. Here lies Edward I, Hammer of the Scots. Good stuff. But then, a bit more opaque. Pactum server. Keep the faith. Mark Morris, in his excellent book, A Great and Terrible King, to which I owe a large debt, has a theory that says the tomb reflects the simple tomb he built for Arthur at Glastonbury. And that Pactum server reflects the oath at Westminster in 1306. Edward was clearly a man who wanted to see the job finished. Much as I might criticise what he did in Scotland, neither he nor his barons doubted for one minute the justice of his rights and his cause. So there we are, the end of Edward I. Next week, we start on one of the most extraordinary periods in English history, a period of enormous turmoil, something to look forward to. And meanwhile, thanks very much to everyone who's commented on iTunes or by email or on the website or Facebook. Very much appreciated as always. So good luck everyone and have a great week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.